This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today I'm going to try and take you on this little journey from Bitcoin to central bank digital currencies. But before I do that, I've got to talk a little bit about how we got to Bitcoin. And so I'm going to start off by talking about cash. So every, everybody knows uh, what cash is. Everybody uh, uses cash. But it's worth pausing for a second and thinking about why cash works. What is it, what is it that cash does? There was a former uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis named Narayana Koshalakota. Uh, and he wrote this paper that was called Money is Memory. And what it basically said was that if we didn't, uh, uh, if we had a perfect memory, if we could all remember everything everyone did, then we could have this kind of system whereby we just kept track of what you did and what you were owed and we wouldn't need money. But we don't have that, so money instead acts as some kind of sufficient statistic for our past behavior and we can use money instead of this perfect record of everything that's occurred. But this still requires sort of an amount of faith. We still have to believe that other people are going to buy into that idea and that if we accept money from someone, someone down the road will accept money from us. And that faith isn't just have to be just absolute. We have a little bit of help from the government. So if you look on the money that's in your wallet, it'll say legal tender for all debts, public and private. And what this legal tender thing does is it means that you know that someone will take your money. For example, you can pay your taxes with money. It also means that people can't refuse money if, if you have a debt with them. If you owe someone money, they have to take it. They can't ask you to wash their car instead of giving you $10. Okay? So that's, that's a, a binding commitment of this being legal tender. Now, carrying around a lot of money is difficult, so we don't always do that. What we used to do is use these pieces of paper here, which a lot of you won't recognize, <laughs> uh, but some of you will, and they're called checks. And checks are kind of interesting because checks aren't money. People don't have to take checks. One of the reasons, so what a check is, is it's a, you're, you're basically, it's a, a note that you're writing and you're handing it to a person which will instruct their bank to take money from your bank account. And people don't have to take checks because checks aren't legal tender. And there's another reason why people don't take checks is that you might not have the money in your account. And also, checks don't actually represent cash in the sense that I talked about earlier and that Checks aren't issued by the government. They're not liabilities of the central bank. They're liabilities of the bank that issues them. All right? So they're not quite the same thing as money. Well, anyway, after a while, we evolved, and we started getting digital forms of money. So we got debit cards, and we got credit cards. And these things are really useful, right? Because now we don't have to carry around cash, and we don't have to worry about paper checks. And then eventually, we got something else called PayPal. And I imagine a lot of you have used PayPal. And PayPal is really neat because it... It basically allows you to make transactions, not to uh, stores that have card readers, but it allows you to make payments to your friends. Right? PayPal allows these person-to-person transactions to take place. Then, a little later, we also got something called Venmo. Venmo is very popular in California. All right? And Venmo uh, doesn't work like PayPal. PayPal actually is built off of your credit card. Venmo is an actual instant payment. It, it works off of cash that you've sent to the Venmo uh, a company and allows you to make these instant payments. So Venmo is very, very convenient. And then we also have these other things, Apple Pay, Android Pay, Google Pay. And what these things are doing is that these things are just a slightly different way to pay with a credit card in a way that protects your identity uh, from the person that you're purchasing something from. And that's very important, and we're going to talk about that. And then came 
this idea called Bitcoin, all right? So a lot of you probably know, or at least have heard about Bitcoin, and, and I'm going to talk a, a bit about how Bitcoin works in a bit, because the, the CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies that I'm ultimately going to talk about, are built off of the same technology, or a variant of the technology that underlies Bitcoin. So it's very under, important that we understand how Bitcoin works and how things change when we created these central bank uh, digital currencies. But before I get there, I want to talk a little bit about what Bitcoin has to offer. Okay, so if you look at the original paper, so when Bitcoin burst onto the scene in 2009, it was accompanied with this white paper by this person called Satoshi Nakamoto, which a lot of people believe might not be a real name and it might not even be an individual person, it may have been a group of people uh, that created Bitcoin. But how did he describe it in the very first line? It, it, it's a peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash. And that's one of the most important things to understand in terms of what Bitcoin is trying to do. It's a substitute for cash. It has the same properties of cash, different properties than bank deposits and other forms of money that you use. Okay? And what are these key properties? These key properties really are anonymity and two types of anonymity. Anonymity from your peers, the person you're buying something from, and anonymity from a third party, that is some type of service provider that's facilitating your payments. So it has these two types of anonymity, and it also has autonomy. Okay, it's autonomous from the central authority, from the central government, from the Federal Reserve Banks, if that's something you desire. Now, before I get into talking about this, it's important to know that there were some uh, precursors to Bitcoin, some things that came before. And one of these is something called DigiCash. And I mention this because it's, it's really fascinating. This was uh, created by a guy named David Chum, who was a... a, a assistant professor in the computer science department here at UCSB back in the early 1980s. And what DigiCash was, was it was a scheme, I don't mean to say scheme in a negative way, but it was, a, it was an idea that allowed you to order money to be transferred from your bank deposit to somebody else without the bank knowing who made the transfer. That's very ingenious. I don't have time to go into how it works, but it has to do with basically pooling money uh, getting an ID associated with the money in the account uh, that's anonymous so that you can instruct the bank to move money. It moves money from that pool, but it doesn't know who it's moving it for. So this was meant to provide autonomy. Okay? But as I said, we also have anonymity. That's another thing that Bitcoins provide. But that's kind of an interesting one, because I wonder how much people care about anonymity. That seems something that might differ from generation to generation. My generation might care more about anonymity than yours does. At least that's what I get the sense of when I look at Facebook pages. The last thing I want to mention briefly is this, uh, this thing called eGold. Uh, eGold was a scheme uh, 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 to provide autonomy. So the idea was uh, with eGold, uh, there's no connection to the Federal Reserve. There's no connection to a monetary authority. And this was a scheme whereby someone just purchased gold uh, and then they sold shares to this gold stock. And you could transfer your gold shares that you owned by transferring cash uh, to buy these gold shares. And you could transfer them from person to person using cell phones. This was back in the 90s. This was very popular. At its peak, it had $2 billion in spends a year, over 5 million accounts. This ended up uh, failing, but not because the business model didn't work, but because they actually ran into some trouble with uh, KYC, know your customer uh, uh, considerations, and new rules that came around after 9-11 that were in the Patriot Act. So they just weren't able to comply with the regulations. There was nothing wrong with the business model. Here's Bitcoin usage. 
So this is monthly usage in millions. Uh, this is something I like to do to just to just put some perspective. Bitcoin has been growing and growing. It's been gaining a lot of popularity since 2009. Uh, the usage here, you know, uh, up to four million a month. Uh, it's interesting though to note that this is when it's competing for other forms of payment. You have a lot of convenient ways to pay. As I just mentioned, you have cash, you have Venmo, you have PayPal. Uh, just by putting things in perspective, uh, in Kenya, where people are non-bank, they don't have many ways to pay, they introduce something called M-Pesa. Uh, M-Pesa is a mobile phone app. It allows people to put money on their cell phones and transfer money peer-to-peer, -peer, also to save money on the uh, on their trans uh, save money on their cell phones. Here's a comparison of the transaction value of Bitcoin to M-Pesa. M-Pesa is in the blue. Okay, so this is just to keep things in perspective. Bitcoin gets a lot of attention uh, because it's really interesting, uh, but the usage of Bitcoin is still very, very small in the grand scheme of things. So this comic is funny to me for a couple reasons. One, when I was at the Fed, I had to explain this to a lot of people. I don't want to call them pointy-haired managers, but I had to explain it to a lot of people. Uh, and also that no concept of zero was really important because basically Bitcoin is, uh, a lot of the aspects of Bitcoin have to do with binary code, zeros and ones. So let me give you just a brief explanation of how Bitcoin works. I can't go into a full dialogue. I've only got half an hour. It would take an hour to describe Bitcoin. The key things I have to explain are that when you make a Bitcoin transaction, you have an app, you download a wallet, you get some Bitcoin. You might get that by uh, selling an item to someone who pays with Bitcoin. You might get it by actually doing mining. We'll talk about that. Uh, you might buy it from an exchange. But when you, tra when you make a transaction, you broadcast this transaction to the network. Uh, people who are attempting to uh, validate transactions, these are called miners, collect these transactions, uh, and they are attempting to validate them. They want to declare the transactions valid. And the whole idea of Bitcoin is it's a trustless system. Nobody controls it. And the way it's, we maintain this lack of individual control is that you have to compete for the right to validate transactions. It's not difficult to check the network and see that transactions are valid because everything's posted publicly. It's a public open ledger. But you have to win the right to declare them valid. That's the trick. And in order to do that, you have to do something called a proof of work. And the way a proof of work works uh, is you have to complete a task. It's a computing task. Uh, and it's difficult to do. And the likelihood that you can do it depends on how much computing power you have. So there's this sort of arms race in computing. Uh, and so the likelihood you win is proportional to how much computing power you win, uh, and then whoever wins gets to declare the transaction valid and they get some bitcoins. That's how the supply of bitcoin grows uh, over time. Now one of the things that this uh, proof of work does is it prevents something called a double spending problem. Uh, and a double spending problem is one way that you could sort of manipulate the network and that would of course be very, very problematic. So here's how double spending works. Imagine that Alice, uh, Bob wants to buy some Bitcoin from Alice. So Bob's going to give Alice a million dollars and Alice is going to pay Bob one million dollars in Bitcoin. Then the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to broadcast that transaction to the network. And if you see the light shaded box, that's going to that's be pending. And so they're going to sit and wait while miners work on the proof of work that I just described. And when they solve this proof of work, that transaction will be validated. So now uh, uh, Alice, uh, or Bob can see that Alice has paid uh, him a million dollars. 
He can leave the suitcase with the million dollars cash in it, and he can walk away. But there's a problem. The network will start trying to compute new transactions and add a new block to this chain. It's called the blockchain. All the transactions are put together in blocks. But then Alice might try something tricky. Alice might run away, run into her room with her big mining servers, and try to mine a new block of transactions that's built off the past, that doesn't include the transaction to Bob. Okay, she just pays the Bitcoin to herself. And if she can successfully do that, and then maybe build another block on top of that, well then the rules of Bitcoin are that all the miners follow the longest chain. So that all of the miners would start building off of this block of transactions that didn't include the payment. Okay, so this would unwind the payment from Alice to Bob of 1 million Bitcoin. So Alice would now have her 1 million Bitcoin back and her 1 million dollars. So that's problematic. We can't have that. So what Satoshi Nakamoto recommends in his white paper is that you wait six blocks. Okay? You wait six blocks, and now it becomes almost impossible to do that double spend that I just mentioned. After paying the Bitcoins, Alice could run back and try to make a validate a new block, but that wouldn't help. The miners are going to continue following this longest chain. Okay, so they'll be valid, attempting to validate a new block. The only way that Alice can succeed in implementing this double spend is that she has to solve another block, another block, another block, and another, and another, all before anybody else in the network solves one. The point is, is that unless you have a majority of the computing power in the system, and there are thousands and thousands of people doing mining, you can't do this. It's the probability of, of doing this if you have less than 50% of the mining power is near zero. Okay, so the idea is, is that as long as you wait a reasonable period of time, then this proof of work process will prevent the double spending. Okay. Well, there's a couple of problems with Bitcoin that we're going to start with as we move towards thinking about central bank digital currencies and how they might work. The first is mining cost. As I just mentioned, they're going through this mining problem. And what is the mining problem? Well, the mining problem is really quite interesting. Bitcoin uh, is the most, or an incredibly ingenious thing, but Bitcoin didn't invent new things so much as it combined many, many different inventions together to form a new thing. And so one of the things it uses is something called a hash function. And a hash function is a function that takes data of variable length and produces output of fixed length. It, it produces what's called a hexadecimal number. It has digits from 0 to 9 and letters from A to F. Uh, whenever you put text into that field, it produces a hexadecimal number. Okay? What's interesting about it is that it's unpredictable. No matter, and it, but, but it's also deterministic. So if you put in some text, uh, it'll give you an output. If you put in the same text, it'll give you the same output, but if you change anything, it'll give you a different output. What miners have to do to win the right to validate, validate Bitcoin transactions is take the information about transactions, so they have to put in, first of all, something about past transactions. They have to add information about new transactions. In this case, just Alice pays Bob one Bitcoin. They have to put in some information about themselves, because they're ultimately going to get paid if they win. And then they put in what's called a nonce. And a nonce 
it's not actually short for nonsense, but it, but it could be, because what you're actually doing is you're just putting in some random junk, which is going to impact what you get as the hash output down at the bottom there. And the idea is, is that you win the right to validate the Bitcoin transactions if you get a hash output with a certain number of leading zeros. And this difficulty level is adjusted by the Bitcoin protocol so that on average, we get uh, new Bitcoins issued every, every 10 minutes. So let's imagine we only had to get one zero. Well, the nonce I put in, just QWF didn't work, so I could add something to it. I get a completely different hash. That hash sequence there looks is completely different than the one before. And I could try again. And sure enough, I get a new hash and suddenly I have a zero. So this worked. I had to play around to get one that would work in just three tries. It could take 10, 50 tries just to get a single zero. In reality, a winning hash has to have a large number of leading zeros. And this is extremely difficult. Uh, the only way to do this, by the way, is by trial and error. And there are specially designed computer chips called ASIC application-specific integrated circuits, which are simply designed to do this particular problem. Take the text file of, of transactions from the Bitcoin network and just keep, keep adding random stuff to it until they get a solution that has the right properties. This is the number of hashes uh, that, was, that was taken to win, uh, validate a particular block. That's 154 quintillion number of hashes. Okay, back when Bitcoin started, people started creating these little mining outfits. So this is a picture of a mining outfit back in around 2012. Okay, someone had a little outfit, they put together a bunch of computers, they were running chips. This is a more recent picture of a Bitcoin mining facility. Okay, entire warehouses located in places where energy is cheap dedicated to mining, okay? This is the current hash rate, uh, an exahash, that's uh, 5.81 billion billion hashes per second. That's how many attempts are currently being done on the network. Well, let's talk about how much that costs. The current hash rate is 5.8 billion uh, uh, gigahashes. If we think about the efficiency of the chips, this is the most efficient chip I could find, so that's kind of a, we'll be underestimating the costs. That results in 581 kilowatt kilowatts, if we do that multiplication, and if we think about that over a 24-hour day, that's 14 million uh, kilowatt hours of power a day to mine Bitcoin. That compares with some small countries. It's the closest is the uh, power usage of North Korea. Okay? If we price that out, if we just look at average ut industrial utility prices, uh, it turns out that the total cost of Bitcoin mining right now this, this back-of-the-envelope calculation is around $1.7 million a day just for this proof of work. That, that works out to $25 a transaction. And that's not all. There's another interesting aspect to this. This idea of these special, these special ASICs chips that are built and miners have to buy, that's also, in some sense, wasteful. Let's think about a quick game. We have Alice and Bob. And suppose they're using processing, they're doing mining, we're just imagining they're the only two now. And the faster processor costs $2,000. And we'll imagine that if they both use the current processor, they have an equal chance of winning. Uh, and if they buy the new processor, they'll have an equal chance of winning. But if one has the new and one has the old, the person that has the new has a 75% chance of winning. Let's look at a game. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this is a normal form game. And so what we're doing here is we're looking at uh, what each person's doing. So Alice can be using old or new, and Bob can be using old or new. 
And if we look at that, if they both use all, they have a half chance of getting, I said 12,000 Bitcoins is what they can earn if they, with, with, the, with the old processor. So they're each gonna get a payoff of six. If they use the new chips, they're gonna get half of 12, but they're gonna spend the 2,000, they're gonna have payoffs of four. So what should they do? It looks like they should both use the old chips. But the problem is, is that if Bob is using the old chip, Alice could use the new chip. And if she did, she'd have a three quarter chance of winning, pay the 2,000. Bob would have a one quarter chance of winning. And those payoffs are seven and three. So what would Alice do? If Bob was using the old chip, she'd use the new chip. And we could also look at the same situation if Alice used the old chip and Bob used the new chip. So what this tells you is that no matter what Alice thinks Bob's gonna do, she should use the new chip. And no matter what Bob thinks Alice is gonna do, he should use the new chip. So they end up in an equilibrium where both are using the new chip. They both spend $2,000 on the new chip. They're still splitting the mining. The coins are not mined any faster because the protocol adjusts for the difficulty level. It's a complete waste. Okay, so the conclusion is new chips are bad for miners and they're completely wasteful. So there's a lot of money that's spent to Bitcoin mining. This is just showing how the technology has improved. People keep buying these, making these new chip processors. People keep having to buy them. Uh, this is just, I won't spend any time on this, but this is just a chart that's showing that the break-even price, and it shows that over time, old chips become unprofitable and people have to move to the new chips. One other problem with Bitcoin uh, is that its price is volatile. This is showing you the volatility of Bitcoin. So it's just a, in terms of the standard deviation of daily returns. Just by comparison, that's gold. Okay, so Bitcoin is highly volatile. It makes it bad as a, a store of value. So there was a solution to this. Now I'm getting into central bank digital currencies. Someone proposed something called Fedcoin. And what Fedcoin was, was Fedcoin was a idea that we could take Bitcoin, but we could solve the volatility problem by tying it uh, uh, to the US dollar. So one for one. So basically the Fed would start its own Bitcoin, uh, but it would have conversion in and out of regular currency, cash and deposits uh, 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 into Fedcoin, and these would be exchangeable at a one-to-one -one rate. So essentially, Fedcoin would be a new component of the monetary base. Okay. This would have monetary policy implications. Uh, if it did away with cash, we could think about something like negative interest rates. Uh, but it would disintermediate banks. Uh, remember before I said when you put your money in the bank, it's no longer a central bank liability. It's a, it's a claim on that commercial bank. Well, that's risky. I mean, there's deposit insurance, but there's still risk. You pay for deposit insurance, effectively. And so people might want to hold these central bank deposits. That could essentially change the structure of the financial system, and one could give a whole lecture on just that. There's also some financial stability implications, however. Uh, if people did move out of banks and into deposits, then we wouldn't have to worry about bank runs. There's no reason to run on the central bank. Well... Fedcoin would have been a consumer-facing central bank digital currency. That's not what people are currently considering. What they're considering instead uh, is an idea of using this technology in wholesale payment systems. That is, the systems that banks use to pay each other. And a couple of years ago, we launched this thing uh, called Project Jasper with the Bank of Canada and Payments Canada, uh, which was to develop a central bank digital currency for making wholesale payments. So the way Jasper works is that uh, people pledge money, the banks pledge money, they send regular money to the Bank of Canada. Uh, the Bank of Canada generates CAD coin uh, on a distributed ledger. 
Uh, the banks exchanged that CAD coin throughout the day. Uh, and then at the end of the day, the payments day, they redeemed that money and get their regular settlement account balance money back. That was the idea. Now, this was built on a platform called Ethereum. Uh, but, the th but when we think, thought about this, this was a closed system. We didn't really need this trustless component. And so we didn't really need proof of work. So we were able to move to a new protocol, which is called Corda. And Corda is a distributed computing platform that has smart contract features. Uh, uh, and it's developed by R3 and it's open source. And one other thing that we did is we dropped the name CADCoin because this, this suggested too much of an association with something like FedCoin, this idea of a consumer-facing central bank digital currency, which we, which we didn't want people to be thinking. So we started using this name DDR. So I'm not going to go into too much, but, but the, the, the idea is that with CADCoin, proof of work was, was replaced by a two-step validation process. One is that you had to prove validations were true. That is, the person that was spending the money to you had the money they were claiming that they had. So this is done by tracing back uh, the history of those transactions. So that's done by the participants on the ledger. And then the other part is making sure the transaction's unique. This is making sure no one's trying to double spend. And this is what proof of work does in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, protocol. Uh, but when we're now we're dealing with this closed, trusted system of banks, we could throw out proof of work and just have this done by a notary, uh, a special participant in the network, which was in this case the Bank of Canada. And the Bank of Canada could ensure consensus and we didn't need uh, proof of work. So uh, we implemented this at a recent uh, meeting of the uh, Payments Canada, put on by the Payments Canada for the, uh, for the payments industry in Canada, and demonstrated uh, a system that allowed two ways of making payments. One was atomic, uh, and one included this liquidity savings uh, feature, which allowed you to make transactions by inhaling and exhaling uh, payments. So the idea is that uh, you can put payments through a regular stream, or you can put payments into a queue so that you only have to settle the net amounts. But in order to do this, you have to be able to take money from the participants. So there was this inhale where money would come to the participants, uh, to the Bank of Canada, they'd run the netting algorithm and send it back. You can see the... Uh, uh, appraisal of this project that we uh, published with the Bank of Canada. And let me just talk a little bit about what the main conclusions were. So what this was was an experiment. Uh, it's not going to be a production system. It was designed to see uh, whether or not it could be done, whether or not we could uh, replicate the features of the large value payment system in Canada using distributed ledger technology and using uh, as a settlement device a central bank uh, generated digital currency. Uh, it was successful. Uh, it's not clear that the bank is going to go ahead and make this anytime soon. There was not a, a lot of advantages discovered over the conventional payment platform, uh, but the idea is looking forward to the future that maybe this uh, can be used as part of a larger uh, scheme of, of integrating payments with a security settlement, cross-border payments, and, and other applications. So that's more or less where uh, central bank digital currencies stand. Uh, there was a proposal for a consumer-facing central bank digital currency. No banks are currently working on that, uh, uh, except for maybe Sweden, where cash is disappearing, and they're contemplating all sorts of alternatives. But lots of work is going on looking at the use of central bank digital currencies uh, in back office applications uh, to improve the performance of financial market infrastructures. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.